1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The minor mystery of GPS jamming, Twitter investigates an apparent data breach, Ransomware command and control staging is discovered. Andrea little from Enteros looks at the intersection of social sciences and cyber. Our guest is Nellie Porter from Google Cloud on the emerging idea of confidential computing and a C2C offerings restricted to potential privateers. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, July 25th, 2022. Russian electronic warfare hasn't been particularly aggressive in jamming GPS. C4ISR, reviews the potential explanations, and they closely parallel the reasons why Russian offensive cyber operations have been similarly restrained. The first possibility is that, just maybe, Russian electronic warfare isn't as good as everyone thought it was. Other Russian capabilities have been overestimated, and there may have been a tendency to exaggerate Russian electronic warfare prowess as well, the thinking goes. Maybe, but on the other hand, Russia has shown an ability to jam GPS signals in Norway, for example, or spoof them in the Black Sea, for example. It's not like the ability to maneuver armored units against opposition. If you can jam in peacetime, there's no obvious reason you can't jam in wartime. Other explanations seem likelier. Or there's this. Russian forces themselves use GPS, and they don't want to deny their own access to the system in the theater of operations. Russia does have both GLONASS, a domestic alternative to GPS, and Chaika, a terrestrial navigation system roughly equivalent to the American LORAN, but these are not as widely used. GPS receivers are cheap and ubiquitous, and many Russian units use them. Almost every smartphone has GPS. Very few, if any, use GLONASS. GPS is everywhere, so this seems possible. Or maybe Russian EW operators, or more properly their commanders, are concerned about the ease with which their jammers could be located, targeted, and destroyed. The assets are valuable, and they have to be husbanded for a time when they're really needed. Another possibility— Ukraine's stockpile of Soviet-era weapons aren't dependent upon GPS, and so GPS jamming won't affect them. Of course, Ukrainian forces are just as likely to use GPS receivers as Russian forces are, and systems they've recently received from NATO use GPS, so this possibility seems unlikely. Or, finally, perhaps Russia is pulling its punches, holding its full capabilities in reserve, against possible use against the main enemy, which would be NATO. In any case, the question has an interesting symmetry with the question about why Russian offensive cyber operations have been more limited, less destructive in their effects, than had been expected. Twitter is looking into the possibility that data from a breach are now being posted on the dark web. Restore Privacy traces the incident to reports in Hacker One back in January – of a breach that had the potential of exposing user information even when that information was hidden in privacy settings. Twitter closed the vulnerability and paid the researchers who reported it a bug bounty, but it appears possible that the vulnerability has been exploited to collect a very large tranche of user data. Restore Privacy says that some of the data released as a teaser are authentic and that the criminal who holds them, who goes by the hacker name Devil, is offering the database for sale. Bidding starts at $30,000. 9to5Mac sees the principal risk in the compromised data as more plausible, more effective phishing campaigns. Twitter told The Record that it's investigating, but their comments focused principally on the January vulnerability disclosure. A Twitter spokesperson said, We received a report of this incident several months ago through our bug bounty program, Immediately investigated thoroughly and fixed the vulnerability. As always, we are committed to protecting the privacy and security of the people who use Twitter. The spokesperson went on to say, We are grateful to the security community who engages in our bug bounty program to help us identify potential vulnerabilities such as this. We are reviewing the latest data to verify the authenticity of the claims and ensure the security of the accounts in question. Census reports finding a criminal ransomware operation that's being staged, and the discovery comes before actual attacks appear to have been carried out. The gang involved is Russian. Some of the attack infrastructure, the researchers say, has been put in place in the U.S. According to the report, Census located a host in Ohio, also possessing the DIMOS-C2 tool discovered on the initial Russian host, and Leveraging Historical Analysis discovered that the Ohio host possessed a malware package with software similarities to the Russian ransomware hosts. The record points out that Census duly acknowledges the role CISA played in the discovery. The record reports, Part of how Census was able to tie the hosts to Medusa Locker was from a Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency report released three weeks ago that spotlighted the ransomware group and provided email addresses, IP addresses, and TOR addresses that the group uses. And finally, there are special offers in the underground markets, too. Sometimes it's like a membership club, a little restrictive, maybe, in ways that might not pass legal muster in most jurisdictions. But then the writ runs differently in the C2C underworld— Security Week reports that Luna ransomware is available only to Russian-speaking cybercriminals. Luna is a cross-platform-capable attack tool coded in Rust that's landed with some eclat recently in the criminal-to-criminal markets is being offered only to Russophone affiliates, presumably because of their suitability as privateers. Are you a criminal speaking a different language? Sorry, go take your trade elsewhere. Visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com. Nellie Porter is Group Product Manager for Google Cloud, where she and her colleagues have been contributing to efforts to enable and implement confidential computing.
2: Confidential computing is one of the tools to protect customers' data in cloud and everywhere else. It's one of the privacy-preserving techniques, I would say, where hardware will assist us to provide cryptographic isolation in addition to normal isolation that we usually have to protect our tenants amongst themselves and our tenants uh, in the cloud provider itself. And, and how does that
1: work from a practical point of view? What exactly is going on behind the scenes?
2: So behind the scenes, uh, CPUs like AMD CPUs and Intel CPUs provide specific instructions that allow very quickly and very efficiently to encrypt memory of your uh, environment, your trusted execution environment. And by protecting memory, uh, we need to ensure that again, all sensitive data, keys, anything that you don't want to see by anyone else uh, will be always cybertext. Uh, but cybertext, when you're looking uh, from outside in, when you're running your application, your workload, your favorite container, you will see everything without any changes. And this magic. Is happen because uh, those CPUs, so specific, I would say, uh, system on the chip, or those specific extensions, not only encrypt memory, but very efficiently decrypt memory when it's coming to cache line. So memory controllers would be able to deal with this again situation and encrypt decrypt very quickly. So CPUs completely. And there, that the data they need to process is actually uh, was previously encrypted and will be encrypted right after instruction will be completed, and that's probably where uh, confidential computing is different from full homomorphic encryption when CPUs are actually uh, performing their instruction on fully encrypted data.
1: So is the idea here that because we're doing the encryption and decryption in hardware, that the users don't suffer any sort of performance hit? The
2: opposite, right. And not only performance hit as security people, we also love to separate duties. and if key and encryption is done by hardware, it means it's done by somebody else like AMD and Intel and cloud provider, even if they wish would not be able to extract those keys. So be or modify anything as uh, the operation and workload performing what needs to be done.
1: Well, how are you and your colleagues there at Google approaching this? What, what sort of uh, things are you all going to be making
2: available? Done <laughs> some work in this area. For many years, we worked and uh, this. Again, they are actually one of the creators Uh, Confidential Computing Consortium. So we strongly believed from day one is that only working together, we would be able to crack this nut and to offer Confidential Computing to our customers, it has to be interoperable. Different approaches will be possible. But as a product, we offered our customers Confidential VMs. This AMD, what we call Secure Virtualization Extension, And it's uh, we provide confidentiality of those workloads when they run in GCP. We also extend the support of confidential environments to other GCP services. Our customers love to run uh, pods and containers in our managed Kubernetes service, which is called Google uh, Kubernetes Engine. So we offer confidential environments for those. for, for, for Kubernetes as well. And we bring in secure analytics to the market. We have a set of uh, products that actually helping customers to run managed Hadoop and manage at Spark. So we have confidential variant of those services as well.
1: Are there any downsides to this? Are, are there reasons why people might not want to implement it?
2: Again, you're probably asking the wrong person. I do believe that confidential computing providing stronger data protection control to our customers and without implication of uh, performance and usability. It's probably as a way how we will see uh, cloud providers will offer the services for our uh, customers and will progress and we will become much more uh, available There's the things that might uh, be uh, complicated for our customers. Our customers never run only VMs and Kubernetes. They need analytics, and they need uh, ability to run data warehouses and huge workloads. So one of the customers told me, not once, by the way, a few, that they need to run in confidential environment, HANA SAP workloads. It's huge, huge, monsters databases. So again, we don't have as a support right now for those services, but uh, again it would be one of the reasons why customers would not apply this particular protection for their uh, workloads.
1: Do you envision a time in the future where this just becomes a standard part of cloud computing where this is something that's enabled by default?
2: Absolutely. And I think it's since the analogy that I always brought up is HTTPS connection. So I actually been part of the situation when somebody was telling us again and again, that certificate for web services is never going to catch up. And it's again today when your site doesn't support HTTPS and doesn't have certificate, it's becoming an exception, it's not the rule. I do believe that confidential computing will be exactly the same. As time will progress and more diversity of services and CPUs will come to the market. It will become simply default ubiquitous option for public cloud providers to offer additional privacy and protection for customers' workloads and their data.
1: That's Nellie Porter from Google Cloud. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She is Senior Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos, Andrea, always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, I want to touch today on uh, the social sciences and how they are intersecting with our cybersecurity world. What's the latest there?
0: Yeah, no, thanks, Dave. And as you know, this, this is something I always like to to be a big proponent of. Um, you know, I think you know we're at a point where we're it's almost becoming you know much more you know normal and accepted to have social sciences and cybersecurity. So it, it's great to be here. I wouldn't say that. We're 100% there yet. Um, <laughs> I still remember, you know, probably, you know, maybe eight years ago being at conferences and, you know, being asked what a social scientist is doing in cybersecurity. And that was always the top question I got wherever I was at, you know, at RSA, Black Hat, B Sides, you, know, you, you know, sort of the, the large community events. You right. know, always got that question and I never do now. And actually, in contrast, I see more and more of the you know, the next generation coming in with some aspect of, you know, multidisciplinary. You know, they've, they've social science training. They've got you know with data science or with, with various kinds of information security, and it's a really great you know multidisciplinary perspective that they're bringing into, into the industry. So it's one it's very refreshing. It's great to see. Uh, it's great to you know talk with you know with them about what you know what they're interested in looking at, and then it's also you know great to you know connect with others you know across the industry, and that that's been another core component of it. You know, we've RSA now has a, has a human element track of it. Mm. Um, and so we're, and we're seeing more and more, you know, acknowledgement that there is room for, you know, a whole range of disciplines in cybersecurity. And that, that's something that, you know, we increasingly need to go f- toward, not only because of the whole, you know, workforce shortage that the industry has, but just right. because it impacts so many different aspects of society that you, we, it really does take so many different perspectives to address the, the challenges that we have right now in the industry. And so that the more social scientists that can come into to complement, not replace. I mean, then I think that's the important thing. You know, it's complement and bring, and bring the perspective in, uh, the better off we are. And whether it's for looking at, you know, some of the legal frameworks that are going on, looking at, you know, the whole you know, range of, of cyber warfare and discussions on that, and actually make it, you know, sync with, uh, you know, decades-old of, of theories that have actually been applied in other areas that might be useful in, in this area. And to, you know, and obviously, you know, social engineering and that, and that whole element of it. I mean, there's just a whole range where, the social sciences can contribute and we're, and we're increasingly seeing it. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really great to see that, that trend, you know, continue to emerge.
1: And so are you finding that, uh, more and more, the social scientists have a seat at the table?
0: Increasingly. I'd say I'm not – so it's not uh, there yet. Very often, you know, it's also you – know, it's kind of pushing our way in. But um, uh-huh. <laughs> but, I, I, <laughs> but I do think that, uh, that there – yeah, I, mean, I, think that I think increasingly there, there is a seed being made. Um, and you know I think there are, you know, in this area and in other areas of the industry, still gatekeepers that try and you know, keep sort of a narrow focus of what cybersecurity should be. Um, but I really do think that for the, the broader part of the community – you know, I think is excited and willing to work together. And that's, that's where, you know, I think some of the most, you know, exciting innovations are going to come is when you have that, the multidisciplinary collaboration going on. You know, we don't want the social scientists to be in their own silo and the, you know, vulnerability experts in, in their own silo and so forth. We want to, you know, get that cross-fertilization together. And that's, because I think we're fairly new at that as an industry, um, I think it, it leads to just a whole lot of uh, optimism about some innovations that might be coming down the road even if you think about things like for passwords and so forth, right? Like, you know, if you bring in, you know, social scientists can understand a you bit know, better why um, or what may be a better solution to passwords. So it's even just very some basic things where we're getting people to do more multi-factor authentication. Um, so even the fundamentals can really benefit from that.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, what, what is your pitch, you know, when when you're making the case that uh, the social scientists deserve a seat at the table and that and that you all have, you know, serious things to contribute what are you telling the, the folks on the tech side?
0: Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, I'd say, I mean, clearly you know, what, what we've been doing isn't working. We're still seeing, you know, ransomware off the charts. We're still seeing, you know, people, you know, everyday citizens still are really not pursuing the, the, you know, the, the foundations of, of uh, proper cyber hygiene. And so that we're, mm. we're, we're not necessarily succeeding yet as an industry. Um, and so why not try something new? And then you can, you know, continuing to do the exact same thing we've always done, you know, is the definition of insanity, so we shouldn't be doing that. And instead of just, you know, continuing to look within the same areas, exploring more, and starting to think about the human element of it, and that's what, we, because again, we see over and over again sort of the, the notion that the human is the weakest link, that, you know, was 90 plus percentage of attacks that are linked to humans, and we can't take the human out of it, right? It's, right, and so instead right. of blaming it on humans, which is a cop-out because we're part of the system, integrate them into a solution. And that's where the social scientists can come in and really help make the integration of human behavior into solutions, make them smarter, sustainable, and something that humans will actually implement as opposed to trying to work around.
1: All right, well, interesting stuff as always. Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. that's the CyberWire. for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com don't forget to check out the grumpy old geeks podcast where i contribute to a regular segment called security Ha! Huh? i join jason and brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week you can find grumpy old geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed the CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Carp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Saby, Rachel Gelfin. Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpe, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.